All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. There we go. Let's do it again because we've got to get our slide because we've got to remember our line. Can you go to the next one? Oh, wait for it. There we go. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We forget our line, so I've got to put it up there for us. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we just sang of some things that if we are honest, we have a very hard time believing. First and foremost, that you are good. And secondly, as your people, that we could be called blessed and called and highly favored. Lord, it is is so hard for us to believe that that is true. But Lord, that is the good news of when we come to you in surrender and we trust in you, Lord Jesus, that you bestow upon us a status that we feel very unworthy to have that you would take us lowly sinners and that you would transform us and change us and save us and forgive us from our sins and then call us highly favored. But Lord, that is the blessing of getting to belong to you. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would help us. Would you help us to see that you are good? Would you help us to believe who Christ is and what he's done for us and that that might transform us this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was the middle of May. It was about 100 degrees outside. I was drenched in sweat. I could feel it dripping down my back. You know the feeling. My face was beating red. I was out of breath and tired. I had spent the last 30 minutes playing Foursquare with my classmates. I was in the middle of sixth grade, and not only was it 100 degrees outside, but I was wearing a big, thick sweatshirt. And I'll never forget the words that one of my classmates said to me as we're playing Foursquare. They yelled to me and say, Nick, why do you always wear a sweatshirt? The truth is, I had been wearing a sweatshirt every day for probably the last six months of my sixth grade year. And it was because six months before that, at the beginning of the school year, I was wearing a t-shirt And I was playing basketball, and at one point, one of my classmates said, what's that under your arms, Nick? And I said, what do you mean? And they said, ew, that's gross. You have armpit hair. 
And from that moment forward, for the rest of sixth grade, I wore a sweatshirt every single day because I was ashamed that I had hair underneath my arms. No one else did. Somehow I hit that stage in sixth grade faster than all the other kids. And I lived the, the rest of my sixth grade days absolutely ashamed of anyone seeing that I had hair under my arms. Our bodies can be a deep source of insecurity, of frustration, maybe at times confusion or disappointment. I think you know the feeling. We have a whole host of thoughts and beliefs about our bodies. Most of them probably are not in alignment with what God's word says about our bodies. We tend to misunderstand our bodies and oftentimes because of that misuse our bodies. Sometimes we think, well, my body is just kind of this necessary evil. The real me is within, underneath the surface. The real me is the person behind the mask of the body. And so if my body doesn't match up with who I feel I am inside, well, then I can change it. Or maybe some of you this morning have this perspective of the body where you just downplay it. You think, God just cares about the spiritual part of me, not so much the physical part of me. That the body is nothing but a housing unit for what matters most, my soul. Or you think that your future in heaven, if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that your future in heaven, you'll finally be rid of these bodies and just live as a spiritual being. Or some of us go the opposite direction and we overemphasize our bodies. We say things like this, that my body is really my deepest sense of security and identity. It is who I am. I find all of my worth and my comfort in my body. Or your, your body is your, your canvas of self-expression. It is the way you tell the world, this is who I am. Or maybe for you, your body is that thing that you look at it through the lens of, if I could just one day somehow get it to look the way that I want it to, I would find peace. How are we supposed to think about our bodies? How are we supposed to use our bodies? Does it matter how we use our bodies? Well, as we come to 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul who's writing lays it out very clearly for us to tell us that God cares tremendously about your body. Not just your soul, not just the immaterial you, but he cares about your physical body. Your body is not an accident. It's not random. It's not incidental. It's not interchangeable. It's not just a housing structure for the real you underneath. Your body is not everything, and yet it's not nothing either. Your body has been uniquely created and is an essential part of you. So much so that God calls us to glorify Him with our bodies. That's how much He cares about our bodies. He cares about our bodies so much that He promises a future redemption of our broken bodies. And as we are in 1 Corinthians 6 today, the Apostle Paul is going to say to us very clearly, Christians, your body belongs to Jesus. So glorify God with your bodies. Let's look at this together. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, he begins by telling us how we are to 
glorify God in how we view our bodies. Glorify. He begins in quotes where it says, "All things are for me," and it becomes a repeated phrase. Kind of debated on exactly what this means, but. What seems to be the general consensus is that this was most likely a slogan or a phrase that's worked its way into the Corinthian church to where they would say, all things are lawful for me. That I am a, a Christian, I've been set free in Christ, all of my past sin, my spirit will go on with the Lord when I die, therefore all things are lawful for me now. And Paul picks up on this phrase that they're using to excuse all kinds of behaviors. You see, the Corinthian Christians in this church most likely seem to adopt a very common Greek viewpoint, which probably is not all that unfamiliar to us. It's this view that the spirit, spiritual part of us, is immortal. And everything that is material in this world is destined ultimately for destruction. It's actually a pagan viewpoint. It's not a biblical one. Though it may be a very common one to us, some of us this morning might, may hear that and think that sounds right, but it's not a biblical viewpoint. But because they viewed it this way, it meant that they thought, well, the spiritual part of us is what really matters. It's really what God cares about. It's really what we'll live on with, with him in eternity. So therefore, what we do with our physical bodies now doesn't really matter. All things are lawful for me. Again, it's a pagan viewpoint. It's not a, a viewpoint from the scriptures. In fact, even as we trace church history, we, we find one of the, the oldest creeds uh, called the Apostles' Creed. Not actually written by the apostles, but considered to be in alignment with the apostles. We can find an abbreviated version of this creed all the way back to the second century. This is a creed that the church has used for centuries upon centuries to say, this is what we believe the Bible teaches. And very clearly in that creed, it says, we believe in the resurrection of the body. Not just simply the immaterial soul, but the body. But because they believed that God was really only concerned with spiritual things, they thought, well, we can use these temporary bodies however we'd like. Which led some of them, many of them, to indulge in sexual immorality. To essentially say, it doesn't matter who I sleep with. God doesn't care about those things. We talked a couple weeks ago about this phrase, sexual immorality, which all throughout the scriptures is basically a catch-all phrase to describe any sexual activity outside of God's ordained means, which is a covenant marriage between a husband and a wife. Every ounce of sexual activity outside of that space, the Bible calls sexual immorality. And so these Corinthian Christians were saying, God just cares about my spirit, therefore I can do whatever I want. God doesn't care who I sleep with. He doesn't care how I use my body sexually. And in fact, we even see one of their lines of thinking here in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Hunger is just a bodily appetite. Therefore, we need to feed the bodily appetites. This church was saying sex is very much the same. All bodily appetites are just the same. Sex is just a craving of the body. Therefore, we must feed it. We must satisfy it. It would be unnatural or detrimental to our bodies. And Paul's actually saying the exact opposite is true. They thought the body's for sex and sex is for the body. But yet there were still others that would then go the opposite direction and say, well, if God only cares about my spirit, well, then all physical things are beneath me. 
And in fact, later in the next chapter, he's going to write to, to have to address even some of the married couples to say, you need to have sex together. This is part of God's ordained means for you. It's a part of connection. It's a part of something that you actually should be doing together because some of them were saying, well, sex is beneath me because I'm just a spiritual being. They misunderstood the body profoundly. And we too are no strangers to this reality. We misunderstand our bodies too. We have all wonky views of our body. Some of us struggle with idolatry of the body. We believe the body is everything. It's the most important thing. When we believe that, we start to obsess over our bodies, obsess over our appearance. We start to make assessments of everyone primarily based off of their bodies and their appearance and what they present before us. We start to obsess over how we look. And that doesn't just mean People that look good are obsessed over their bodies. People that are very insecure about their bodies can also be very obsessive over their bodies. We can obsess over our health, whether we're in good health or bad health. To put a massive emphasis to say the body is everything. I must steward it. I must worry about it. I must get it checked out all the time because if I don't have this, I have nothing. Health being the priority above everything else. Some of us obsess over our bodies. We worship our bodies. We say it's everything. And yet some of us dismiss our bodies and go the other way and say, the body is nothing. The body doesn't matter. It's just physical. It's just temporary, which can oftentimes lead to lawlessness with the body or an obsession over self-expression, saying, I can use my body however I want to express the real me underneath. which allows us to pretty much justify any use of the body. Say, well, it just has to come into alignment with who I really am. Some of us despise our bodies, if we're honest. We hate them. And so we neglect it. We mistreat it. If we're honest, we would say it's, it's not what we would have ordered off the menu. As if our, our body was like a deck of cards that we were dealt by a dealer and we look at it and we're, ugh, I wish I had blank. I think many of us this morning feel shame about our bodies. In fact, I think every single person in this room feels a certain amount of shame about our bodies. All of us. I shared with you one I experienced in sixth grade. I still experience that. You experience that. Some of us are very, feel very ashamed about the way our body looks, certain parts of it. Some of us feel ashamed about our face, our height, our hair, our skin color. There's many things. Body shame comes in all shapes and sizes and varieties. And what's so unique about bodily shame is it's often confusing from one person to another. One person is, is incredibly insecure that they are overweight, and yet there's another person that's uh, deeply insecure about being incredibly skinny, and each one look at each other and say, what in the world is wrong with you? I wish I was like you. How could you feel insecure? And this is the sneaky evil of shame. It comes in all shapes and sizes. We could find the most fit person in the entire world, and I guarantee you there's something about their body they're embarrassed of. That's not good enough. 
I heard somebody say this week that based off of where we've gone as a society with all of our technology, all of our abilities to brush up and and touch up and present the perfect image, we are no longer comparing ourselves to the best of our species. We We are now comparing ourselves to the best of our species' imagination. All this to say we do not rightly understand our bodies. But God wants us to. He wants us to rightly view our bodies. And so what does the Bible say about our bodies? If we could kind of sum it up, it would be this, is that the Bible gives our bodies incredible dignity and significance. Just look at the very beginning of our Bibles in creation. God intentionally creates the body Each one of them is handcrafted. God has created billions and billions and billions of these, and yet he does not create them like a factory does. He creates them like an artist does, individually, by hand. In fact, we're told in Psalm 139, what does David say? He says that we have been knit together, each one of us. That's not just David. We have been knit together in our mother's womb. If you've ever watched someone knit It's a very intentional process. Each little thread matters. God says that's how you've been created, intentionally, with purpose. All of you, not just your outer appearance, even your inward parts, meaning the parts of you you don't ever think about. God has intricately designed and created You've been fearfully and wonderfully made, David says. It means there's nothing random about your body. It's not just the cards you were dealt. It's what God created you to have. Limitations and all, it's the body he wanted you to have. You were planned by the Lord. So the Bible tells us our body is intentional. It also tells us that our body is essential. You see, you don't just have a body. You are a body. It is essential to who you are. Think about creation for a moment. If you know the creation story, you know what God does. God creates a body first and then breathes life into that body. God does not create a soul and then go looking for some lump of flesh to stick it in. He creates a body. Adam is an is a embodied person. He's not just an animated soul. He's not just just a soul that got stuck somewhere. He created Adam. Part of Adam's identity is that he has a body. It's part of who he is. We cannot separate the real us from our bodies. In fact, when the Bible uses the word soul, most often it is not referring to some immaterial part of us. It's actually saying the whole you all of you, every part of you, body included. In fact, we can't properly understand who we are without reference to our bodies. If you just look at this passage here, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, just go through your Bible, just circle every time he references the body or members. Paul uses body and you interchangeably. The Bible doesn't have this perspective that you can just do things with your body without you actually doing those things. And we know this. 
We know this intrinsically that that's a reality. When we do something to someone's body, we know we're doing it to them. Our body is essential to who we are. And so your body is you, and yet it's not all of you. Right? Because the Lord tells us in, in 1 Samuel 16, he says, man looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. Meaning there's, there's, there's ways in which God looks at you that isn't just entirely represented by your body. And so your body is essential to who you are, and yet it's not everything about who you are. It's not your entire identity, and yet you can't separate it from who you are. It's essential. Your body matters. Your body is also the one that Christ took on himself. This is probably the greatest compliment the human body has ever been given is that Jesus Christ took one on himself. Jesus Christ came to earth not as some disembodied spirit, not with the flesh of an animal. He took on a human body. You want to know what gives dignity to the human body is that Jesus Christ, the almighty, eternal God, has one. And it looks like ours. Even more than that, Jesus didn't just take on a body, but even now in this very moment, he still has one. Jesus resurrected from the dead, which is what very much we will celebrate next week. And when Jesus was resurrected, he was not a spirit. He was in a resurrected new body. He could be touched. He could be felt. It was different. The, 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 the Bible describes how somehow he like appeared in a locked room. Did he pass through the wall? Did he teleport? I have no idea. But we know this, that Jesus has a body and yet it's a new body, but it's still a body. It's been glorified. It's been resurrected. It's been made new and he's ascended back to heaven and still has his body. Your body matters. The Bible also tells us very clearly in this passage here is that your body, if you're a follower of Jesus, your body is united to Christ. Look at what he says in verse four, in 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? It does not say, do you not know that your souls are members of Christ? It's talking about your bodies. Isn't that profound? Your very body that you experience and touch and feel and look at every single day. If you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus has taken you and your body and united it to himself. You are one with Christ. He calls you his body. We also see this too from the scriptures is that your body will be resurrected. This is such good news. We're going to get to more of this later in the book of 1 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians 15, which, all, which talks about our resurrection bodies. But we're told in Romans chapter 8 that we await something very profound. We have Romans 8 for us on the screen. There it is. It talks about how the creation has been groaning to be redeemed. It says, but not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption 
of our bodies. Part of the gospel message. When you come to Christ, you put your faith in him and your trust in him. Your bodies will one day be redeemed. I want that so bad. Your body will one day be redeemed. I heard it said this way. As of right now, when we put our faith and our trust in Christ, we, we already have new creation software, but it's running on old creation hardware. And one day we'll get a hardware upgrade. And it's going to be great. But in this season, we groan. Because we know we've been given a taste of what's coming and what's new. We've been given the first fruits of the Spirit. God comes to live with us. He's made us new. He's already redeemed us, and yet he hasn't fully redeemed us. And so we groan as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. The body is not something to escape. It's something that is waiting to be redeemed. The the Lord Jesus is so eager to bring this day. Because what we seem to see from Scripture is that everyone that is with Christ now, that has already gone ahead, that has already passed, that, have, that believe in Jesus and have, and have already died, still are awaiting their resurrected bodies. The Bible seems to be pretty clear that no one gets their resurrection body until Jesus Christ returns. What a glorious day that will be when all of God's children will be given redeemed, glorified, resurrected bodies. That's going to be an incredible day. So Paul calls us to glorify God in how we view our bodies. He also calls us to glorify God in how we experience the brokenness in our bodies. Because our bodies are broken. They are not yet redeemed. They are tainted and marred by sin. This is what the book of Romans says in Romans chapter 3. This is the effects and the extent of sin on the human race. And listen to how much language there is about the body. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lip, lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What that passage is doing is it is presenting before us the reality that there is, there is no part of you that is untouched by sin. Your body was created good in Genesis 1. So we have Genesis 1 bodies that are declared good by God. But Genesis 3 also happened where we rebelled against the Lord and sin entered into the world. And so we'd also have the broken bodies of Genesis chapter 3. And Paul is saying here, same author, sin is rampant. Sin has spread to all of us, to every person and every part of every person. There is no part of your body that is untainted by sin. And boy, do we know this. There has been so much sin that has taken place in and through our bodies. It's ground zero 
for our experience of sin. We've spoken or written words that have meant to crush somebody. We've used our eyes to go looking for evil, pornographic content. We've used our bodies to sin sexually. We've used our bodies to inflict pain. We've used our bodies to physically walk away from someone who needed our help when we should have gone to them. Our bodies are so intertwined with our experience of sin. When you think of sin, you feel it in your body. It's how you experience it. They've almost become synonymous. We experience so much bodily brokenness. Paul is specifically addressing here sexual sin and how we experience the brokenness of our bodies in sexual sin, the things that we've done. And Paul peels back the curtain on what happens in sex, that it is not simply physical. You see, we have this idea as a culture to say things like, well, it doesn't matter, it's just physical. And the Bible would say, it matters because it's physical. Paul says in here, what happens in sex is the two become one, which is exactly how God designed it to be within a covenant marriage between a husband and a wife. But when we take it outside of that context, it's not as if it suddenly becomes simply just physical and doesn't matter. No, it's still doing the thing that God designed it to do. It's uniting people together. Which means we can't check Christ at the door when we enter the bedroom. It's not as if we could simply say to Jesus, you stay here. I'm going to go look at a few things. I'm going to go use my body in the way I want to use it. I'll come back to you later. Your, mem- your bodies are members of Christ. What you unite your bodies to, you unite Christ to. That's what Paul's saying here. We experience so much bodily brokenness in sexual sin. In fact, the very logic that they were using here in 1 Corinthians to say all things are lawful for me, Paul would say not all things are helpful. The things that you think you have the freedom to do are actually enslaving you. Because part of our bodily brokenness is we are enslaved to sexual sin. It owns us. It takes over us like an insatiable appetite that needs to be fed. And we foolishly think, if I feed it, I'll kind of keep it tame. Rather than, rec- not rec- than, than recognizing when I feed it, I give, an a- give it an appetite for more of those things. And we become enslaved and unable to say no to it. But what makes it doubly hard is our culture says it's normal. It's exactly what they felt here in Corinth. In fact, a very popular second century Greek man said this, we keep mistresses for pleasure. We keep concubines for daily concubinage. I did not know that was a word. But we also keep our wives in order to produce children legitimately. All that to say, this stuff is just like normal. Like you just, you have your wife or wives to produce children legitimately. Then you have your mistress for your pleasure. Then you have your concubines for whatever you want to use your concubines for, and this is just normal part of Greek life. Paul's words would have hit a culture that said, why are you talking about these things? These are just normal bodily appetites. 
exactly the culture we live in. He says it's normal. In fact, if you, if you don't satisfy these desires, you're harming yourself. It's so normal, if we're honest, if we use the Bible's definitions of adultery and sexual immorality, every one of us in this room has, have had, has had dozens, if not hundreds, of partners. Because Jesus says, if you, if you look at someone lustfully, you're guilty of adultery. And that fills the sheet with names, does it not? Just because it's normal doesn't mean it's not broken. We've all had that experience of maybe being in your house and having something break in your house, right? Maybe it's a broken picture frame or a chip of paint on a wall or a, a faucet that, that kind of leaks. And when you first see it, you realize, oh, I need to fix that. It's broken. But you kind of delay fixing it. And what starts to happen? You start to stop noticing that it's broken, right? It just kind of becomes normal. It's just like, this is part of my house. And until somebody comes over and says, are you going to fix that? And you're like, I, I stopped seeing it, right? But just because it became normal didn't mean it was, wasn't still broken. The message our culture preaches to us about sex is so broken. No matter how normal it may feel, it's still broken. We also experience sexual abuse, which is not the things that we've done, but the things that have been done to us. And the evil of sexual abuse is it not that so often those that are abused that actually carry the wounds and the shame. There's many that also experience a sense of bodily dysphoria, which is deeply painful to feel like in some way very uncomfortable in the body that you have. You might have conversations about how one should view their bodies, but you cannot deny those that are experiencing that are experiencing deep pain. Or many of us experience the brokenness and just the sense of unfulfilled desires in our bodies. Sense that our bodies are not enough. If I could just experience this with my body, then everything would be better. We experience so much brokenness in our body. Really, the question is not, do we experience brokenness, but what do we do with it? What do we do with the brokenness that we feel? The, the very man writing this, Paul, is no stranger to this feeling because he cries out. He cries out at one point in Romans chapter 7. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because that's what it feels like. There's so much brokenness. There's so much pain. I can't control the desires. I can't control the urges. I, when I want to do what I want to do, I, I can't do it. I, I end up doing the thing I don't want to do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And church, the answer to our bodily brokenness is not found in our bodies. It is not found in us changing our bodies to feel more peace. It is not found in us properly using our bodies to make up for all of our failures. The answer to our broken bodies is the broken body of Jesus Christ. Amen. That is the only hope 
for our broken bodies is to turn to Christ whose body was broken for us, whose body literally physically bore the weight of our sin and our shame and our brokenness and bore it bodily so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be forgiven and cleansed of our sins. Isaiah 53 tells us, by his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. Through his stripes, we are forgiven. Jesus Christ needed to bodily, physically go to the cross for us in our place. He needed to bear the weight of God, the wrath of God for our sins on his body on a tree. We needed that. Jesus knew bodily pain. He knew bodily sorrow. He knew bodily weakness far more than any of us ever will. Jesus too knew the feeling of shame. Jesus intimately knew what it felt like for people to not want to look at him. That same chapter, Isaiah 53, tells us that there was nothing desirable about him. He was, as, he was a man from whom others would hide their faces. So he seems to be telling us that in everyday life, Jesus is visually not something special to look at. But in his suffering, he is actually something to look away from. Jesus' suffering was so shameful that people hid their faces from him. Jesus knows shame. Jesus knows what, what that feels like. But Psalm 34 tells us something so beautiful. It says, those who look on him are radiant. So if you experience shame in your bodies, this morning there's an invitation to look on the broken body of Jesus in your place, bearing the weight of your sin and your shame. And the Bible promises those who look on him are radiant, shining, full of glory, will not be put to shame. Church, Christian, if you look to Christ this morning, you are radiant. No matter how you feel about your bodies, you are radiant. We could even say this, Jesus experienced some kind of bodily dysphoria. On the cross, Jesus, who's never known sin ever, ever, he's perfectly holy, perfectly good, perfectly righteous, he's never known sin. On the cross, Jesus becomes sin. In that moment, that ought to feel so disorienting to Jesus. The, the man who's never known sin now experiences the weight of all the sins of God's people in his body. You think that felt natural to him? Man, that ought to felt like this body is not mine. What is going on? And yet he does that for us. And if you come to Christ, if you trust in him, if you believe in him, the Bible gives you this promise that your bodies will no longer be identified by what you do with them, but by what Christ has done for you. Your body will no longer be identified by what others have done to your bodies, but what Jesus has done for your body. If we will bring our broken bodies to Christ, we can find full forgiveness and redemption. 
So we must also glorify God in how we use our bodies. What's astonishing is, I feel like there's this question that rises up of how could, I, how could our bodies possibly be used to glorify God? The same bodies that at many times in our life have been used as instruments of death and destruction and pain and sorrow and sin. How could these bodies ever be used to glorify a perfect and a holy God? It's found here in verse 19 and 20 where it says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The only way that our bodies can be used to glorify God is if they have been purchased by Christ's broken body. And God said that's exactly what he did for his people. He purchased your body. Which means a few things. It means, first and foremost, your body is not yours. Now, in every other context, that's really bad news. If someone came to you and said that someone purchased your body... That's about as bad as it gets to not have agency or control or authority over your own body. That's really bad news. In this context, it's the best of news. We carry so much pride about our bodies. We think that they are ours. They are our choices. But when we read the Bible, that's not the case. If you belong to Christ, Christ has purchased your body, which means he can tell you what to do with your body. And it's always for our good. Paul says in here, your body is for the Lord. It's his. Your body's not yours. This also means this, is that it means that you are dearly loved by this Jesus. That Christ would purchase your body means that he loves you. It means that your body is acceptable to Christ. He approves of you and your body. Even if late at night you think to yourself, nobody wants this. If your body belongs to Jesus, then he's the only one that needs to approve of your body. The only one. He wanted it. He wanted to purchase the redemption of your body. There's a power in that, in being accepted. And knowing that if Christ accepts me, if Christ is approving of me and my body, no matter how disgraceful I feel about it, no matter how shameful I feel about, feel about how I used it, how it looks, Jesus Christ, the almighty God, approves and accepts me and my body. That's freeing. It also means this, that if Christ has purchased our bodies, we now have power to glorify God with our bodies. Some of us this morning have been walking in sexual immorality. We've been presenting our bodies to be used as instruments of unrighteousness. But if you turn this morning and come to Christ, you find full and free forgiveness and now power to glorify him with your body. Or we are told in Romans 6, present your members, your, the members of your body, present them to the Lord as instruments for righteousness. That's so beautiful to say, Lord, I give you my hands. Would you use these to tenderly love others and care for them? 
Would you use these hands for your glory? Would you use these feet in the places that I go and where I run to and what I run away from? Would you use it for your glory? Would you use my mouth, Lord, which has been used to, to, to spread such destruction and pain? Lord, it's yours. You've, you've purchased it. I present it to you. Would you use it as an instrument for righteousness? God has the power to do that through you. It's the power to change the story about our bodies. It also means this. It means that your body is destined for resurrection because it belongs to Christ. Whatever has happened to Christ's body is coming for your body if you believe in him. Jesus is the first fruits for us. He is the firstborn of all creation. What has happened to him is coming for his own. For as much as our bodies have been associated with sin and pain in this life, in the new heavens and in the new earth, our physicality will become synonymous with joyful worship. You won't feel shame about your body. You won't feel insecure. You won't feel weak. You won't feel burdened. You won't feel worried. You'll have a new resurrected body untouched by sin made to look like the body of Christ. It will only ever be used to glorify God, which will not only be for God's glory, but it will be for your joy. Your joy will be ever increasing forever and ever and ever and ever and ever more. Hear the word that Christ speaks to us, to not just our souls, but our bodies, when he says, I am making all things new. The old is gone, the new has come. Our lowly, yet significant bodies can now glorify the Lord. So Paul says to us, you belong to Jesus. Do you actually believe that? Do you actually believe that? I'll close with this. There's a story I came across the last couple months about a small town in the UK, a small town in the Welsh mountains. It's a, it's a small coal mining town, a really impoverished community. But this community had a soccer team. In fact, they've had a soccer team. Um, they have one of the oldest soccer teams in all of the world. And for years upon years, this soccer team has honestly just been getting worse and worse and worse, falling into further obscurity. And the town itself has been getting more and more impoverished, more unemployment. It's just been a brutal place. And one day, um, two rich American celebrities came and said, we want to buy that soccer club. And the town was real skeptical, but eventually approved the deal. And ever since that happened, these two American celebrities have started pouring resources into this club. They've been pouring dollars after dollars after dollars into this club. They've been investing their hearts and their souls into this place. They've been renovating the stadium They've been working endorsement deals. They've built now this thing into a global brand. People are buying jerseys from this obscure soccer team in the middle of Wales. They're buying these jerseys all over the world. It's turned into a global brand. They started signing expensive players, outspending all the other clubs in their leagues by sixfold to get the best players they can here. They've had massive attendance from the fans in their town. There's hope again about this team. They've started winning games. 
They started having success. In fact, they're on the brink of being elevated to another division, to a, to a, a better league. The city's starting to turn around too. The amount of people that are unemployed is, is shrinking. People are getting jobs and the whole community is turning around. What's the catalyst for all of that? A change in ownership. A change in ownership has sparked a brand new story for a whole community, a whole city, simply because the owner changed. And friends, that's what happens to us when we come to Christ. We have a change of ownership. We have a God who now cares about us and loves us and promises that everything he calls us to and everything he'll do is for his glory and it is for our good if we'll trust him if we'll present our bodies to him as to be used as instruments of righteousness, you can trust him. He can change your story. Let's pray together.